Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at recent Supreme Court rulings aside from overturning abortion rights, and how all signals are that they are going full steam ahead on a conservative, authoritarian deconstruction of the past 100 years of progress. Clips today are from Amicus, Democracy Now!, Strict Scrutiny, What Next?, and In the Thick, with an additional members-only clip from The Majority Report. It's interesting that just this week we celebrated July 4th and the Declaration of Independence, etc. And it feels like the court is doing two things at once, taking us back to the 18th century in terms of understanding what the Constitution means and doing so so aggressively. These decisions not only were losses for progressive or even liberal people or people who believe in democratic governance, but they were colossal losses. And we see a muscular conservatism with this new emboldened supermajority on the court that I think will have lasting implications, not just for the court's interpretation of the Constitution, but for the very idea of the Supreme Court. You know, many people feel that they have really overreached and overreached in ways which are deeply ideological and political, not in ways that have the kind of special thing that the Supreme Court is supposed to do, which is to interpret the Constitution consistently over time. And Nico, I want you to answer the same question with the gloss that I do feel like you get a certain amount of I told you so privileges because you've been telling us for quite some time that this is precisely what the court would and could do. And that for a lot of folks who woke up in the last weeks and said, wait, what? The court can, you know, contravene 80% public opinion on guns and abortion? That can't be right. This probably is cold comfort to be able to say I told you so. But if you'd like to, now's your moment. No, I don't want to say I told you so because I don't think it has happened yet. The court's current 6-3 majority, I think, is only getting started. And getting started can mean a couple of different things. So as far as the court's history is concerned, I think absolutely the role that the Supreme Court has played historically in American law has been to protect property interests from regulation to protect large and wealthy corporations, to ensure that white voters are not, quote unquote, displaced by voters of color or women or anyone else who, once enfranchised, might represent some sort of cultural threat. And while there was a notable 30-year period after 1937, when the court seemed to repudiate some of those historical commitments, I think what we're seeing is basically that 30-year period was an interruption to a much larger trend. And I think one important thing to emphasize is this Supreme Court has not had a Democratic-appointed majority on it since 1969, so before the moon landing. So since 1970, a majority of the justices on the court have been appointed by Republican presidents. And over time, litigants have been trying to figure out, well, what can we do with the current majority on the court? What can we get away with? And you see the sorts of questions that the court considers change over the past 50 years. So 50 years ago, the sorts of questions the court was considering was like, does the 14th Amendment outlaw the Senate? Is the Senate compatible with equal protection? Or should we continue to displace litigants whose rights are violated with standing? 
Or should we abandon standing doctrine altogether? Do whales and trees have rights to sue? These are the sorts of questions the court was considering to protect environmental justice, protect reproductive justice. And over the past 50 years, the questions have just become more and more conservative, and the court has become more and more conservative. And what counts as a moderate justice has become more and more conservative since 1970. And so I think what's new about this term relative to the past 50 years is just that the court has accelerated in a way that makes it seem as though the previous 50 years were 50 years of moderation, as opposed to a pretty consistent push in a very conservative direction. And Mark, you really do get to say I told you so, because uh, Nico reminded us right before we came on that this breakfast table last year involved you warning of a Mad Max smoking apocalypse scenario. I wonder if you can answer, and this is slightly uh, amorphous take on the question I just asked our other two guests, but one of the things that I think Nico flicked at this just now as well, we haven't quite integrated is that... The court is signaling that this is by no means an outlier, that this is, you know, stomp your foot on the gas pedal. We are all systems go. And I wonder for people like you and I, who for years have been writing, the court cares what the public thinks. They triangulate against public opinion. They're careful not to get too far out of their skis because there are repercussions. What does it signal when you get a Justice Alito or a Justice Thomas just saying, don't care, don't care, and don't care? It's very disorienting. And I think of it as an experiment because for most of modern history, there has been at least one swing justice who had a finger on the pulse of public opinion. Lewis Powell, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, sometimes, not always. And now, of course, that's gone. Chief Justice Roberts sort of filled that role for a couple of years, but now Brett Kavanaugh is the median justice, which is just terrifying words coming out of my mouth. And Chief Justice John Roberts is the fourth most liberal, as you and I have discussed, which doesn't mean he's liberal, but the five justice ultra conservative majority clearly does not care what the public thinks of its rulings. Now, that doesn't mean they don't care what the public thinks of them. I think that Brett Kavanaugh has a huge ego and wants the public to like him. I think that Amy Coney Barrett wants to be thought of as an intellectual and a professor type who is just grappling so intensely with the issues. She asks these arcane and esoteric questions at oral arguments that focus on some random, obscure part of the case that makes you think, wow, she's a genius. She's found this really important little tidbit that she's going to extract and use to find a middle ground. And then she completely ignores it. And the final decision blows past it. She was just performing. So I think that Kavanaugh and Barrett have these egos, but at the end of the day, they will do what they want without concern about public backlash. And the simplest explanation why is because there's nothing the public can do about the court. Now, Nico's going to tell me I'm wrong, and I'm going to really enjoy hearing it because I want to be wrong. But my own view is that it's extremely unlikely that Democrats will exercise their political power in a way that reigns in the Supreme Court anytime soon. And so we're going to learn what happens when there's no Powell or O'Connor or Kennedy, and the court just goes entirely off the rails and veers sharply to the right 
right, away from public opinion without any semblance of doubt or any apology and just decides to go full speed ahead on a different track that most Americans are appalled by or at least very scared of. We don't know where this will go. But it seems like the ball is in the Supreme Court's court. And, um, you know, if Congress isn't going to do anything, if the president is going to do anything, they're just going to push this baby as far as they possibly can until it blows up. Figuratively. It's interesting because Mark and I, I think, both took the position that when SB8 was moved from the shadow docket to the merits docket, it was a signal that a massive public outcry had evinced that there is some capacity for shame or at least some capacity for managing optics. I think we overread that signal. Uh, but Nico, I want to give you, Mark has thrown down the gauntlet in his first round here. And I want to give you an opportunity because uh, one of the reasons I so wanted to talk to you for this show is that you think about the structural institution as part of government and you have been warning us, you were warning the Biden commission to stop thinking of judicial review as this powerful, magical uniform that helps act as a minoritarian check on reckless majorities. And you've been saying this is not what the court, as you said, there were seven good minutes where the court did that in the interest of protecting civil liberties, but not its historic function. And I, I do want you to answer, Mark, but I also want you to Tell me what the answer is to the question that I've had leveled at me, which is, you just don't like the outcomes. This is not a structural critique. You were perfectly happy with Windsor. You were perfectly happy with Roe and Obergefell. So you're just a hypocrite. You're fine with the court acting as a minoritarian check as long as it's your civil liberties that are being protected. And I wonder, what's the formal smart Nico answer to that question? I think that there is a structural response to that. But I also think that it's important to keep our perspective on what is actually happening. So what role is the court currently playing in American government and American politics? And I don't want to lose sight of that because from a external perspective, a term like this seems pretty clear what's going on. So in 2020, the national GOP in preparation for Donald Trump's campaign, it had no new national platform. It just took the 2016 platform. In part, that was just because of the influence of candidate Trump. But in part, it was because the GOP can effectively enact its entire domestic policy agenda through unrestrained state legislatures in red states and unrestrained federal courts in blue states. So the Republican Party has, to its credit, spent the past 30 years identifying these two institutions, state legislatures and federal courts, as important sources of power. And they have taken over these two institutions. So most states at this point are under one party control. You know, the governor's office in both houses of the legislature, the federal courts, you know, there's currently a 6-3 conservative majority on the court that doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. And so in theory, Congress or federal agencies can threaten this dominance. So Congress could, for example, enact a law that codifies Roe or a much better version of Roe and says, here's the new national standard for reproductive justice. But so long as the Republican Party controls either the House or 40 senators or the presidency, it just needs one of those three veto points. Congress can't do anything new. 
And in theory, there are existing federal laws like the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act that would prevent state legislatures from doing things. But this Supreme Court is taking care of those laws by either invalidating them or interpreting them so absurdly narrowly that they have no effect and executive agencies can't enforce them. So the summary of the role the court is currently playing is removing federal restrictions on red state legislatures and imposing federal restrictions on blue state legislatures. And while I think that that may just speak to the court's role in 2022, what's I think really important is that this is an institutional role that the court has played over time. The court has always been this dynamic source of allocating power between different institutions in the American federalism structure. And so we, as the American people, have to decide when it comes to these really important constitutional questions, not even constitutional questions, just really important questions, like what should reproductive justice look like in this country? What should our country's response to climate change look like? What should we do about these massacres every day that are preventing people from going outside or to school with fear? And one answer is, well, we should rely on these six people who were appointed by presidents with the goal of imposing a policy agenda, but who are not accountable to the public, who write opinions saying we are not accountable to public opinion, as Justice Alito just did in the Dobbs case, who specifically say we do not care what you think about us. That's one answer for who should resolve these really important questions. And another answer is our elected officials. We should have a national legislature that's capable of enacting laws. We should remove the structural barriers that prevent Congress from enacting laws and responding to these pressing policy challenges. Because right now, we have such an inert Congress that the only branch of the federal government that's acting are the federal courts and executive agencies. And what opinions like West Virginia versus EPA this term suggests is that federal courts will not allow executive agencies to do their own thing. And so long as we have this current structure where we just say whatever the Supreme Court says goes, we're going to continue to live in a system in which the most important questions facing all of us are decided by these six people. Supreme Court announced Thursday it'll hear oral arguments in a case experts warn could be one of the greatest threats to U.S. democracy since the deadly January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. In October, the court will hear Moore v. Harper, a case which seeks to reinstate gerrymandered congressional maps that were struck down by North Carolina's highest court. A ruling in favor of North Carolina Republicans could strip state courts of their power to strike down state laws while expanding the power of GOP-controlled state legislatures to control federal elections. Legal arguments brought forward by plaintiffs in Moore v. Harper could drastically alter how congressional and presidential elections are conducted. At the heart of the case, a theory known as ISLT, that's Independent State Legislature Doctrine, which the Supreme Court's repeatedly rejected for well over a century. But the theories gained support in the new majority conservative court. Justices Neil Gorsuch, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Brett Kavanaugh have all endorsed different versions of this doctrine. The three liberal justices have signaled they will not overrule the Supreme Court's many precedents rejecting the doctrine. This means the fate of the case could rest in the hands of Justice Amy 
Amy Coney Barrett. Just one day before the Supreme Court agreed to hear Moore v. Harper, it ruled 6-3 to three to reinstate a Republican-drawn congressional map in Louisiana struck down by a lower court as a racially motivated violation of the Voting Rights Act. New York Democratic Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted, quote, we are witnessing a judicial coup in process. If the president and Congress do not restrain the court now, the court's signaling they will come for the presidential election next, unquote. For more, we're joined by Carolyn Shapiro, professor of law and director of the Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States at Chicago-Kent College of Law, co-authored the recent Washington Post op-ed headlined, A New Supreme Court Case Threatens Another Body Blow to Our Democracy. She is a former clerk to the now-retired Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Professor Shapiro, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you just start off by laying out the significance of the court taking up this case and what you are most concerned about? The, the case is very important. In, in uh, 2019, when the Supreme Court said that partisan, extreme partisan gerrymandering claims couldn't be heard by federal courts, it's in a 5-4 decision, it said, that's okay, don't worry, there are other ways to challenge extreme partisan gerrymandering, and one of those ways is through state constitutions. That's exactly what happened in Moore versus Harper, and now the Republican legislators who drew this map at the, that dramatically skews in a, a congressional delegation in favor of Republicans are suing and saying that, in fact, the state constitution and the state courts don't have the power to limit partisan gerrymandering or, for that matter, to in any other way constrain legislatures when they regulate federal elections. So this could open the door to a host of problems. It eliminates the the, the kinds of ordinary checks and balances that we expect courts and constitutions to place on legislatures. Tell us who Moore is. So Moore is one of the Republican leaders of the uh, of the um, North Carolina state legislature. And North Carolina has a law that allows him to, and his uh, and some of his colleagues to intervene in this case and to bring this lawsuit. What the what they want to be able to do is to draw maps of, for the congressional districts that the North Carolina Supreme Court has already said violate the North Carolina Constitution. Normally, state legislatures can't do things that violate their state constitutions. But this ISLT, or independent state legislature theory, says that they do have the power to do that when it comes to regulating federal elections. Uh, the reason for that has to do with the language in two clauses of the Constitution that give state legislatures the responsibility and the power to regulate federal elections. But nothing in the con federal Constitution suggests that they get to do that free of the ordinary limitations of state constitutions. So, so this would explain this in practical terms. Are we talking about federal elections and state elections? Y you have to deal with them separately in each state? How do people vote? This is a great question, and it is one of the really big problems with the ISLT. What it suggests is that a state legislature could, it could pass a single law that governs federal and state elections, which is what happens in most states, and that if a state court 
finds that some aspect or all of that statute to be unconstitutional under the state constitution, it still has to apply to federal elections. So you might find yourself, a state might find itself with two registration systems or two different mail-in deadlines for absentee ballots, all depending on the particular state constitutional issues that the state court rules on. This doesn't, this makes less than no sense uh, as a matter of separation of powers. It doesn't make any sense as a matter even of imagining what a legislature might have intended when it passes a single law governing both state and federal elections. So it could cause enormous chaos. It also opens the door to a kind of mischief, uh, or mischief is an understatement. It gives the state legislatures the power to do things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And so they could pass laws that govern just federal elections that are extremely uh, problematic from the perspective of democracy. They could draw, for example, as in North Carolina, incredibly gerrymandered congressional districts. They could even potentially uh, create systems in which a state legislature gets to resolve any disputes over election results in federal elections, which would include presidential elections. Uh, And we could imagine what that might look like uh, down the road. It it could be extremely dangerous. Much of that, if not all of it, would be unconstitutional under many, if not all, state constitutions. But under the ISLT, that wouldn't matter. Uh, Finally, we just have 30 seconds. How does this relate to the Voting Rights Act? Well, they're both—both the Voting Rights Act and the ISLT— or the uh, movement against the ISLT are ways of trying to protect voting, protect the the power of the people to choose their own representatives. And in in those cases, as as in others, the Supreme Court, the majority continues to cut back on protections for voting and protections for democracy. It's extremely dangerous. If you haven't yet heard of Libro, get ready to be excited. Libro is the audiobook company that lets you buy audiobooks online, listen to them on iOS and Android apps, and support your local brick-and-mortar bookstore at the same time. This, in contrast to, for instance, the online bookseller notorious for having nearly driven local bookstores out of business. Many of you may even already be members of an audiobook club where you pay a monthly fee and return for one audiobook credit each month, plus a discount on other individual purchases. Sound familiar? Well, now you can get the same great books and the same great deal, but from a company that doesn't make their warehouse employees pass out from the heat or office employees cry at their desks and support your local bookshop instead of trying to drive it out of business. So it's probably time to make the switch, I'm just saying. That said, if memberships aren't your thing, you absolutely don't need one to shop Libro. Don't sweat it and get only what you need when you need it. You can get all the details at bestofleft.com slash Libro. That also lets them know that I sent you bestofleft.com slash L-I-B-R-O. And meanwhile, if books made of trees are really more your thing, you can get the same warm and fuzzy feeling and still support your local bookstores by going to bestofleft.com slash bookshop. 
So during the Obama administration, the EPA announced the Clean Power Plan to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Now, the Supreme Court stayed that rule, right, prevented it from going into effect before a court of appeals decided whether the rule was lawful. And this was totally extraordinary, okay? The Supreme Court had never reached out and put a rule on hold like this before the rule had gone into effect and before it had been considered by the lower courts. And this was a 5-4 order, right, by the conservative justices. And it gave a pretty clear sign of the court's hostility to this regulation. But... This was late in the Obama administration, and once the Trump administration took over, that administration tried to rescind the on-hold clean power plan and announce its own rules regarding climate. And the short version of those Trump administration rules is basically like a manifestation of this line from Batman about the Joker, some men just want to watch the world burn. Um, right. I said Trump, Trump rules. It should have been like unrules, right? They're right, literally exactly. the opposite of, of what rules <laughs> traditionally do. Right. Because one of the Trump administration rules repealed the Clean Power Plan, and another rule stated the administration's views that the Clean Air Act did not allow the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to engage in so-called generation-shifting rules, basically rules that said, you know, you power plants can use other methods of generating energy to satisfy this rule rather than reduce emissions from the current methods of generating energy that the plants use. So a rule that basically said you can comply with this rule by using solar power or wind power rather than coal, you know, that is what it means to be a generation shifting rule. So there's a challenge to what the Trump administration has done, both its rescission of the Clean Power Plan rule and its own unrule rule. Um, <laughs> and the D.C. Circuit ruled both that the Trump administration had not validly rescinded the Obama-era rule and also invalidated the Trump unrule. Um, but that is all around the time of the end of the Trump administration and the beginning of the Biden administration. And the Biden administration, after coming into power, said, look, we're actually going to adopt our own rule. But before the Biden administration could do so, some GOP-led states pulled out the playbook and asked the Supreme Court to review the case about the validity of the Trump-era rules, and including the Trump effort to rescind the Obama rule, and to say that the Biden administration couldn't do, I am hesitating here because we have grasped throughout our discussion of this case to accurately convey what it is that is being requested, but yeah. it's a pretty bizarro world that this case inhabits. But basically, these red states are asking the court to rule that the Biden administration can't do some things that the red states <laughs> expect the Biden administration <laughs> to likely do, but the administration hasn't actually done yet. The court in this case held that the Clean Power Plan, which again, is not in effect and, in fact, has never been in effect. And possible regulations that the Biden administration might enact are topics that courts should opine on, which is, you know, pretty hard to square with existing justiciability doctrine, like doctrine about what kinds of cases the court can weigh in on. But, you know, why let any of that stand in the way of a good time? Exactly. Um, so having concluded that it will opine on the clean power plan, which again has never gone into effect and all of its metrics have been met at this point. So it doesn't actually require 
power plants to do anything. So the court holds that the EPA did not have the authority under the Clean Air Act to adopt generation shifting rules like the Clean Power Plan under Section 11, a provision that authorizes the EPA to adopt the best systems for emission reduction. There's a passage in the dissent by Justice Kagan that really calls to mind, you know, the odd procedural posture that you were just describing, Kate, where she says, the court today issues what is really an advisory opinion on the proper scope of the new rule EPA is considering. This court could not wait even to see what the new rule says to constrain EPA's efforts to address climate change. That really called to mind language from Justice Sotomayor's dissent in an earlier case that described the court as newly constituted and restless. And so I just thought that was notable. Totally. Maybe we can just start out with a note about the consequences or fallout from this ruling. So Rachel Rothschild, who came on the podcast previously to discuss this case and is an environmental law and climate expert, will be joining the faculty at University of Michigan in, I think, just like a week uh, or maybe a day, 24 hours. Her appointment it will be effective by the time you hear this podcast. Um, so she unfortunately couldn't join us today, um, but she did pass along this evaluation of the court's ruling, which I'll just share now. So Rachel says, the decision certainly could have been worse. EPA can still issue regulations under Section 111 to address greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. The agency can also still regulate greenhouse gas emissions through other provisions of the Clean Air Act, such as those for cars and trucks. But at the same time, it's important not to minimize how bad this decision is for addressing climate change. It is hard to see how EPA can now issue a regulation under Section 111 that will make significant progress on reducing emissions from power plants and pass muster with this court. And that is incredibly unfortunate given the current stalemate in Congress on any new environmental legislation. So it's pretty bleak. And Rachel knows what she's talking about. And this is really, this opinion is going to have the effect of hamstringing the rulemaking process that the Biden administration is in, although by no means should the opinion be read to say they can't or shouldn't try, right, to address emissions. But this court is really hostile. And it looks from reading this opinion as though if EPA tries to do anything remotely like what the Obama administration tried to do in the never actually in effect clean power plan, (laughs) it won't be allowed to do that. Which, by the way, is just notable because, you know, the states rushed off to the Supreme Court asking the court to stay this rule because the rule was just so impossible to comply with. It was going to put all of these businesses out of business. And it turns out that was just wildly overblown and not at all accurate. And so it's just so dispiriting to think that the court said, actually, the agency can't enact this regulation that, you know, we were going to meet anyways, like the regulation was never even that aggressive. But you would never know that from reading the characterization in the majority opinion, which we should say, is a Chief Justice Roberts opinion that really makes it sound as though these faceless bureaucrats, just guns blazing, decided to just refashion every aspect of the American economy and American life. And really, like, this was not remotely like that. And exactly as you just said, Leah, the targets were totally achievable inside of a decade. Like, there, this is already an overtaken set of objectives. And yet, the kind of, like, ominous depiction for the early narrative of the opinion of this kind of extreme overreach on the part of EPA is kind of what Roberts and the majority want you to think the agency was trying to do here. So 
Maybe just a few quick observations about this. This is, I guess, the narrow and limiting approach to just reviving the non-delegation entirely, but it's unclear how narrow it is or how limiting it is, given that it's completely judge-empowering and just invites courts to ask, like, do I think this is kind of a big deal or not? And in the hands of this court, it's basically a Republican Party veto over like regulations created by a democratic administration. By definition, because it is structured to invalidate anything that is big and bold and will have significant impact, it is a fundamentally deregulatory doctrine that's going to be wielded by this conservative supermajority court. And anytime you have a democratic administration that wants to do big, bold, maybe novel, to quote Yulia, policymaking, that's going to just run squarely into the major questions doctrine because the court just doesn't want to let agencies do anything. That's, I think, what this boils down to. The Supreme Court has haunted the Biden administration since before there was a Biden administration. I say that because in the waning days of the 2020 election, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and Amy Coney Barrett was rushed through a confirmation process, it put a spotlight on Biden's cautious approach to judicial reforms. He'd never been a fan of ideas like adding additional justices or instituting term limits. In fact, he'd been speaking out against those kinds of things for decades, calling expanding the court in particular a boneheaded idea. But with Justice Barrett's appointment creating a conservative supermajority, Mark Joseph Stern says Biden knew he couldn't ignore the court. So he really threaded the needle during the election. He clearly didn't want to put off progressives who were clamoring for court reform. And then he also didn't want to alienate moderates or Republican crossovers. So he basically declined to take a position on court expansion or even court reform during the election. Um, he was like, well, you just have to put me in office and see what I say. Uh, and then he floated this idea of the Supreme Court Commission, which was put a bunch of eggheads on a Zoom. I'd like to begin by providing a summary of brief and have them create a report that sort of gives pros and cons of each side without coming down in any one place. Reform debates have always involved partisan conflict and philosophical struggle over substantive constitutional values. What did you hear when you listened to how this commission talked about, like, what can we do here? So... You know, the the commission functioned decently well. I I don't want to slam the logistics of it. I think that what I heard mostly was honest, thoughtful intellectuals discussing um, in in a very serious and um, cogent way, like what role the court plays in our society, in our law, what role it should play and what alternate visions would be. What I didn't hear from the commissioners themselves until the very end when some of them got angry and and felt like they were being taken for a ride. But what I mostly did not hear was um, direct uh, criticisms of the court and the justices, which the commission mostly farmed out to guests who testified at these hearings. Instead of having commissioners say the court is bad, they brought in professors and advocates and lawyers and such and had them explain why the court was bad. And then in its report, they just sort of put those quotes in there and said, well, reader, you decide. It's up to you and left it at that. Right. Did they even issue any recommendations? 
No, their report expressly said these are not recommendations. And I think the closest that it came to any kind of favorable tone was on term limits. Um, but even then, it, it really declined to endorse it or to say that it would be constitutional for Congress to impose term limits. And I actually think that threw cold water on the, um, the, the brewing movement for term limits because this commission came out with a report that wouldn't even say whether or not this this uh, reform would be lawful and constitutional. And if the commission won't say that, then it's hard to convince a majority or a supermajority of Congress to pass that kind of bill. You highlighted testimony from people like Christopher Kang in front of the commission. And I, I thought he was particularly interesting because he's someone who had been an insider, worked in the Obama administration, and basically came in front of this commission and said listen, we need to talk about the fact that the reason we're not reforming the courts, the reason we're not doing that, is because people like us benefit from the status quo, from where things are now. If progressives are disproportionately buying the fiction of an independent judiciary, then who is selling it? The answer, quite frankly, is people like those in this meeting, legal elites, academics, Supreme Court practitioners who benefit from not criticizing the court. And many of the elite. I, I think that what Chris was doing was putting lawyer brain on blast, and rightly so. Um, law school is not just education, it is indoctrination. Whether or not professors even want to do it, and I, you know, there are certainly more centrist and liberal professors than there are conservative professors, but across the spectrum, these professors are part of the system. They have a vested interest in perpetuating the system. And so from the very beginning of law school, you are taught to just absorb this assumption that the system is good, that it mostly operates the way it was intended to, and that you are joining a rank of elites who can be trusted to guard the constitutional order, and that the riffraff who question your authority don't know what they're talking about. And that has created a, a a system in which most participants, including lawyers, including consultants and advisors who work for Democrats in the Senate and at the White House in picking judges or waging confirmation battles, they all share this basic belief that the system works and is good. What we're seeing instead is a massive amount of money being poured into um, training soldiers for the conservative legal movement, who are given every advantage in, in law school and in their careers because it's a, it's a relatively small network. There was one study that showed that conservative law students are 11 times uh, more likely to get a federal clerkship than liberal law students. And those clerkships are feeders to prestigious jobs to and eventually everything. They open judicial roles. Every door. They open every door. You get If you're a Supreme Court clerk, you get a $400,000 bonus when you sign up with the law firm afterwards. If you're even a clerk for, for, a, for a district court or an appeals court, you get so many benefits. The world looks at you differently. And it's becoming so much easier for conservatives to enter that world and much, much more difficult for liberals to be a part of it, starting from like the first day of law school. You said some of the commissioners felt like they were being taken for a ride a little bit and got a little feisty towards the end. Do you want to say more about that? Like, who were those people? What were they saying? So I, um, 
you know, our friend of Slate, Larry Tribe, a famed law professor. Uh, at Harvard, yeah. At Harvard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That little that little school outside of Boston. <laughs> um, school by the river. <laughs> he wrote a really great piece with Nancy Gertner, a former federal judge, also a friend of Slate, um, uh, where they said, you know, we entered this, this process with lawyer brain, more or less, you know, as part of the group of elites who all share the same assumption that the system works and that we're guardians of it. And we exited it disgusted by how corrupt this system is and by how devastating um, the consequences of our complicity have been. And now we... So their minds were changed. Yes, absolutely. And and the same is true of, of, of Sherilyn Eiffel, um, former head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, big, big time civil rights lawyer, one of the greats who was on the commission. And she was one of the very few who would actually break into the commission's own public negotiations and meetings and say, I think this is wrong. Like, I think this centrist pablum that's being peddled right now is really just absolutely wrong. And when a draft report came out, that was just like materials for the committee uh, when building its final report. But Sherilyn came out swinging at some of these meetings. She publicly, during one of the meetings, condemned large portions of it and said that it was one-sided and that it had a massive bias toward the status quo. Hmm. I think some people would say, even if this commission had released recommendations, like said, okay, we need term limits here, or we need more justices on the court to really make things fair, those reforms might not be actionable. So what's the point? I think it's because Biden really delegated his opinions to this commission. So you think if they would have been fiery, he would have been like, okay, let's let's light a match. Yes, The mandate from the White House was not to light a match. It was not to come up with an aggressive playbook for court reform. It was to assess these ideas. But even then, the commission did not have to do it in these cold clinical tones without without making any kind of decisions or recommendations. mentioned it in your temperature check, the radicalization of the Supreme Court, and you're writing for the nation, you wrote, and this is your words, they sought out fanatics who would be willing to ignore the practical implications of their rulings, zealots who would not only ignore precedent, but ignore reality itself. Yeah, the thing that people need to understand is that in 1992, the Supreme Court upheld Roe v. Wade upheld a fundamental right to an abortion. Now, in that case, called Planned Parenthood v. Casey, they did put new restrictions on abortion rights, restrictions that, you know, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, um, activist groups have been fighting for the past 30 years. But fundamentally, the Supreme Court 30 years ago upheld Roe v. Wade five to four. All five justices who upheld Roe v. Wade were appointed by Republican presidents. In fact, the 1992 court had eight of the nine justices on that court were appointed by Republican presidents. Yeah. It is impossible to think now of an eight to one Republican court that would uphold anything, just any right given to vulnerable or minority people in this country. So we have to ask what's changed. 
And what's changed is the kind of justice that Republicans now are willing to put forward. And that critical difference is this understanding of practicality. Hmm. Right? The five Republicans in 1992 did not like abortions, nor were they fans of federal government power. They also believed in this Confederate idea of states' rights. These were not liberals by any stretch of the word, right? Right. But people like Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, David Tudor, they all understood that there were practical realities behind their decisions and specifically the right to choose that no court could overcome by fiat. And so what I'm saying is that that court understood that people were going to have abortions, whether the Supreme Court liked it or not. Mm. And the question was simply, were they going to be safe, regulated, and in what manner would this health care be doled out? They understood they did not ha- not have the power to revoke a right to basic health care. No court can do that. This court, the current conservatives, the current people that Republicans put on the court, they don't care about practical realities behind their decisions. And that's why you see this extremism, not just in the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health case, not just in the abortion context, but across the spectrum. So it's the same Republicans who don't care that 10-year-old girls will need health care services, who are also saying we shouldn't care about the statistics on gun violence when making our new gun rulings. In a New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which liberalized gun laws even further, that's how ridiculous they are. Yeah. That's how we get the decision in West Virginia v. APA, where the court functionally ignores the reality of climate change. So when you think about how the court has become what it's become, people need to understand it is that way by design because Republicans have stopped nominating judges who care about the practical realities of their opinions. You know, this is interesting because the way you framed it, Ellie and and Aaron, you, I'm going to play a clip of Kiara Bridges, who's a law professor. At, Ooh, that's my kink, man. <laughs> <laughs> at UCAL Berkeley. Professor Bridges was testifying last week at a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on the decision to overturn Roe. Let's take a listen. The states that are passing the most restrictive uh, laws around abortion are also the states that are preventing people from voting. Um, Senator Lee, Senator Cruz have talked about oh, this uh, Dobbs decision just returns it to the, the elected representatives of states to, and people can battle it out in these laboratories of democracy as to whether they want to protect fetal life over the interests of, of the pregnant person. These are the same states that are stopping people from voting. Texas has the most restrictive voting laws on the books. Texas's SB8 doesn't represent the will of the majority of Texans. Texas SB8 represents the will of the majority of Texans that were able to vote. So, you know, you can hear it, right? Aaron, you were with Vice President Kamala Harris in Florida yeah. last week, right? Yeah. And it's what Ellie's saying. She's like, my clubhouse, my team's telling me, like, there's nothing you can do, right, about this. So what can you do? I mean, well, what can Democrats do? Like, I guess my question, yeah. Well, you mentioned the Vice President. I mean, both in Orlando and then uh, in Atlantic City, where she addressed the NAACP, you had Vice President Harris making the direct connection. She was saying that basically she had her staff do a Venn diagram of states yeah. where you have these abortion restrictions taking place overlapping with states where voter suppression laws have been passed. And there's something like 10 states where, you know, that's kind of the nexus, right? Yeah. And so she's in 
Orlando, Florida, ground zero for exactly that kind of conversation, helping people really understand that literally, as as we have been pointing out at the 19th, that abortion is on the ballot for folks, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether that's candidates who are running for office, including a lot of women candidates who are sharing their own stories of abortion, right, as part of campaign ads, or whether you've got elected lawmakers, many of whom are women who are sharing their stories about why they needed access to an abortion and what this would mean now that this right has disappeared for millions of women across the country. And so, yeah, I think, you know, initially when the Dobbs decision came out and the messaging, especially from from the administration was kind of, you know, just telling people to vote as a solution as opposed to asking them and really making that direct connection and explaining to them how voting is the catalyst, right? Yeah. To kind of be the firewall for so many of these protections that people thought were settled law or not really up for debate. We're obviously seeing that that is not the case on abortion, on voting rights. You know, the door is certainly open on everything from gay marriage, yeah. interracial marriage, et cetera. Ellie, before we move on, because we actually have two other big topics to talk about because it has been a week. Your final thoughts on Democrats and the clubhouse and your team members saying, like, be quiet. Yeah, man, I want to go back to voting rights because voting rights was the canary in the coal mine. They couldn't have done this without first taking away voting rights. That's why they did it in the order of operations that they did. So from 30,000 feet, what was the Republican response to the first black president? What was the Supreme Court Republican response to the first black president, right? Shelby V. Holder. Right. Shelby, right? Shelby County V. Holder, right? 2013, the first thing Republicans on the Supreme Court did to counteract the fact that black people and brown people in this country had shown themselves to be enough of a political unit that they could elect a person of color to the presidency twice— The first thing that they did was basically gut the Voting Rights Act, which is my pick for the most important piece of legislation in American history. Mm. The Voting Rights Act is the first piece of legislation in American history that made us a democracy and not an apartheid government where whites get to control who gets into government. And they took it away in 2013. Then they further gutted it in 2021 in Brnovich in Arizona. That's why they, you know, Shelby County was about Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Brnovich was about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And it was only when they had sufficiently cut the power of the people to vote them out of office that Republicans then went whole hog on abortion rights, and it's not going to stop there. So while obviously voting is important, and obviously voting is the first, last, and intermediate lines of defense against all of this, the thing that we have to keep focus on is not just voting, but then voting for candidates who are going to restore the right to vote to everybody, and that is how we're going to get to a point where we can then revoke or repeal some of these Supreme Court decisions. So it all comes back to voting rights, but Republicans are the ones who knew that, I think, a lot earlier than our side did. You have to make the playing field uneven. It has to benefit you, right? And that's what they did before they can then cram it down your throat. Yeah, and Julio, if I can just make one more point to what Ellie is saying, it wasn't just that you had the 2013 and then 2021 decisions. It was that... The Voting Rights Act was gutted, 
and there were no political consequences yep. Nothing. for that happening. And so exactly. this is a thing that, you know, used to be bipartisan. People, you know, thought right to vote was, was sacred in this country. Voting Rights Act gets gutted. Nobody pays a political price. In fact, you only have more people getting elected. Exactly. And so fast forward to now, you know, you're seeing what's happening with abortion. If there will not be political consequences to this. And that's how it happened. We've just heard clips today, starting with Amicus breaking down how the court has almost always been a force working against progress. Democracy Now! looked at the potential for the court to fundamentally change the way elections are run. Strict Scrutiny discussed the hamstringing of environmental regulation. What Next? analyzed Biden's Supreme Court commission. And In the Thick explained that the court didn't get this extreme by accident. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the Majority Report discussing a recent ruling on teachers coercing prayer in schools. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Speaking of hearing more information, I want to finish up today with one quick story and a bonus clip for everyone to hear. The discussion today about the Supreme Court being packed, not just with conservatives, but with zealots who are willing to disregard reality, really came to mind when uh, I was reminded of two stories, or one I heard of today, but Amanda reminded me of a story from a few weeks ago, it was a situation with a drug called methotrexate. It's a very common drug used to treat rheumatoid arthritis, among other ailments, including extremely dangerous ectopic pregnancies. Depending on the dose, can be used for different things. It's a, it's a very safe, very you know, widely used drug that does different things. But of course, since it has anything to do with pregnancies, the overturning of Roe has resulted in people being denied their methotrexate at the pharmacy until they can prove that they're not pregnant. Because they're being prescribed this drug for a, a, you know an ailment of theirs that has nothing to do with pregnancy, nothing to do with ending an ectopic pregnancy, but they still have to prove that that's not what they're using it for. Sometimes this is out of fear for these new laws, and then other times it is pharmacists who are actively refusing to dispense drugs based on their own personal beliefs. The idea that, hey, I think this person might want to use it as an abortifacient. And so I'm going to personally decide to not dispense the drug. And that is allowed on a state-by-state basis. You know, some states don't allow their pharmacists to say that, and others do. So that's just one example of the kind of terrible unintended consequences you're going to have when you allow the Supreme Court to start stomping around in the private medical lives of Americans in their Christian soldier boots. This bonus clip I have for you, which is a story that just came out today, is another of those such stories. Elizabeth went for a walk after breakfast. It was May 10th, weeks before the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade. But in Texas, things had already changed. Most abortions after six weeks were banned. Elizabeth didn't think that could affect her. They were going for it. They were setting up the nursery. But when Elizabeth got back from her morning walk, 
she felt something shift inside. This burst of water just falls out of my body. And I screamed because that's when I knew something wrong was happening. James rushed home and they drove to the ER at Houston Methodist Hospital in the Woodlands. And I asked the technician, I was like, is she okay? And she goes, well, it's kind of hard to tell because there's very little amniotic fluid. At the time, I had no idea what that meant. It was premature rupture of membranes. Her waters had broken too soon. It happens in about 3% of pregnancies. If it's later in pregnancy, sometimes doctors can delay delivery, give the fetus more time to develop. But sometimes the baby is born far too early and dies, or is born with serious disabilities. Elizabeth was admitted to the hospital, and later that night, her OBGYN called to talk it through. She was 18, almost 19 weeks pregnant. There was still a fetal heartbeat, but it could stop at any moment. The watery cushion of amniotic fluid had disappeared. That also meant the lungs in the fetus would stop developing. Her doctor said one option was to try to stay pregnant, although this could be very risky and would likely not work. And she says, let's say if you get to the week of viability, which is around 24 weeks, I can't promise you that she will continue to live past that point. And because there's no amniotic fluid left, she's no longer going to be a developed baby. Elizabeth's doctor wouldn't do an interview for this story. But Dr. Alan Peaceman, a maternal fetal specialist at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, says the chance of a fetus surviving in that state from 18 until 24 weeks is virtually zero. It's almost inevitable that the pregnancy is going to be lost anyway. And many women would say, why do I have to continue to carry a pregnancy that is doomed? Uh, And that's a huge psychological burden. Prolonging the pregnancy also meant Elizabeth could develop a serious or even life-threatening infection in her uterus. So her other option was to end the pregnancy. Elizabeth was distraught and heartbroken. She could never have imagined making that decision, but now she felt continuing the pregnancy was wrong. It felt scary and also cruel. You have to ask yourself, would I put any, any living thing through the pain and the horrors of having to try to fight for their life the minute that they're born. James was in total agreement. But the next morning, they learned it wasn't their decision to make. The Texas law was making it hard for her OB to arrange the procedure. I remember hearing her from my room speaking loudly about how nothing is being done here. Her doctor came back to her bedside. Elizabeth says she looked defeated. And she starts to cry and she tells me, They're not going to touch you and that you can either stay here and wait to get sick where we can monitor you or we discharge you and you monitor yourself or you wait till your baby's heartbeat stops. The Texas abortion law meant they couldn't end the pregnancy as long as there was a fetal heartbeat. There was one exception for a medical emergency. But wasn't this a medical emergency? Elizabeth was told no, not yet. She had to wait for more signs of a growing infection in her uterus. Dr. Peaceman in Illinois says the hospital in Houston was dealing with a state law that doesn't define what qualifies as a medical emergency. It's terrible, but the care providers are treading on eggshells. They don't want to get sucked into this, into a legal morass. 
Houston Methodist Hospital declined to comment on the specifics of Elizabeth's care, except to say they follow all state laws and that there's a medical ethics committee that sometimes reviews complex cases. At first, I was really enraged at the hospital and administration. To Elizabeth, it already felt like a medical emergency. She had cramps. She was passing blood. But she was told those weren't the right symptoms. She needed a fever of 100.4 and chills. Her discharge had to be darker, and it had to smell bad. Then they could proceed and end the pregnancy. To them, my life was not in danger enough. Elizabeth says she realized later the hospital was just as trapped as she was. It wasn't that the Methodist Hospital was refusing to perform a service to me simply because they didn't want to. It was because Texas law put them in a position to where they were intimidated to not perform this procedure. Under Texas law, doctors can be sued by almost anyone for performing an illegal abortion. Elizabeth was discharged, but she was barely out the door when her phone rang. But as I'm leaving Methodist, I get a call from Methodist. And it's this woman who is saying, hi, Miss Weller, um, you're at the 19-week mark. So I'm here to call you to register for your delivery on October 5th so I can collect all your insurance information. How are you doing and are you excited for the delivery? And I just cried and screamed in the parking lot. This poor woman had no idea what she was telling me. And I told her, no, ma'am. I'm actually headed home right now because I have to await my dead baby's delivery. And she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I I, I didn't know. Elizabeth went home to wait for one of two things to happen, both awful, for the fetal heartbeat to stop or to get sick enough to become a medical emergency. The next day, Thursday, she started throwing up. But when she called, they said vomiting wasn't one of the symptoms they were looking for. On Friday, she called back and begged to get in. Maybe the fetal heartbeat had finally stopped? They went to the office. The heartbeat was still there. Her OB had been calling other hospitals, but none of them would help. Right there in the office, James started looking for flights to states with less restrictive abortion laws. And he and I kept telling each other, what, what, what is the whole point of the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm, and yet we're being pulled through this? They went back home. They started booking tickets. And then suddenly, Elizabeth felt another gush of fluid leave her body. The color and odor were much worse. They called the doctor again. Now they were told to go to the ER and hurry. These symptoms showed the infection was getting worse. Elizabeth and James rushed back to Methodist. They were still checking into the ER when her OB called again. The ethics panel had reached a decision. They found a doctor from East Texas who spoke up and was so patient forward, so patient advocating, that he said, this is ridiculous. Everybody there agreed and decided that what was happening was unethical. And they decided to induce you tonight. Elizabeth and James stood up and threw their arms around each other. They said thank you out loud over and over. We shouldn't have been celebrating. And yet we were. Because the alternative was hell. It was Friday night. They induced labor. And it was so painful that she needed an epidural. After midnight on Saturday, May 14th, she gave birth. Their daughter was stillborn, as expected. They laid down this beautiful baby girl in my arms. 
and she was so tiny and she rested on my chest. I cried and I told her, I'm so sorry. I couldn't give you life. I'm so sorry. Six weeks later, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. What happened to the Wellers could now happen in many other states, and there are already reports of risky delays for this problem and other pregnancy complications. Elaine Cavazos is a perinatal psychotherapist in Austin. She says there's already so much silence and stigma around pregnancy loss. All too often, patients are told to get over it, move on, try again. Now many patients will also be coping with a new kind of medical trauma. It's just really unimaginable to be in a position of having to think how close to death am I before somebody's going to take action and and help me. This is the one situation in my entire life where I have felt absolutely hopeless and that I was drowning and no one was willing to save me. The state of Texas put me through that mental anguish because I couldn't get the help that I needed. As abortion rights topple in state after state, a terrible question remains. Even the strictest bans have an exception for the woman's life. But right now, almost no one knows exactly how close to the edge her life needs to be. Carrie Feibel, NPR News. Now, what I couldn't help but be reminded of when hearing that story is the rules that often get put into place in anti-poverty programs. They'll put in a rule about the level of poverty a person must be in to qualify for help, which doesn't sound completely absurd on its face. But then, of course, the devil is in the details, and it's all about how they calculate a person's level of poverty, right? And so, for instance, a person in poverty buys a cheap car to help them get around, to get to work, maybe to get a new job that they couldn't have otherwise. Maybe public transit doesn't get to this place, but if they had a car, they could get a better job, that sort of a thing. So a lot of times the value of that car will count against the person in terms of their personal net wealth and will make it so they no longer qualify for the financial aid that they depend on, even though, you know, it's not like they can buy food with that car or pay for rent with that car. And so even though owning a car can be a stepping stone to pulling oneself out of poverty, which you'd think everyone would be in favor of, the law is written in such a way to actually incentivize people to not take that kind of a step because they'll be kicked off the financial aid program that they're depending on for their food or their rent or whatever else. And so you end up with a program that is, in a perverse way, sort of incentivizing people to stay in poverty. And that whole worldview comes from an effort to prevent people from taking what these politicians or conservatives or whoever see as undue advantage. They don't want people to take undue advantage of a program. And so in an effort to prevent that, they err on the side of making things really difficult for people. They really don't want for someone to get something they don't deserve. And so they make the entire system incredibly difficult to navigate and incredibly difficult to work through or work your way out of, particularly if you're in a situation like poverty. But in the case of pregnancy, though I disagree entirely with the whole premise of limiting abortion rights, even I can see that the idea of making exceptions for emergencies 
sounds like people making an effort to find a middle ground, right? Again, it's not a middle ground that I'm okay with, but at least it seems like they're trying. But what they don't seem to get is that this worldview literally incentivizes suffering on essentially every level, whether you're a person trying to climb out of poverty, a person exploring your own reproductive options with your doctor, or just someone hoping to not get killed in a mass shooting on the way home, the kinds of policies favored by these zealots, driven by a very particular form of Christian ethics, are literally designed to make your life harder and more full of suffering, because they prioritize their ideology over the suffering of others. And this is why my core philosophy is simply to reduce suffering. Everything else stems from there. I mean, what a miserable philosophical place to be where your ideology is at odds with other people's well-being. I say that if your philosophy is at odds with other people's well-being and to follow your set of ethics means that suffering will go up, then there is no better indication that you need a new set of ethics. Cases like restricting access to drugs to arthritis patients because of Roe versus Wade and the tragic story of the wanted pregnancy, we just heard like these stories should be the only thing people need to realize, if they hadn't already long ago, that there is simply no place for the government to be stepping in and making these kinds of decisions. And in these other policies that I'm describing as, as being sort of uh, stemming from parallel thinking, uh, you know, poverty programs, gun control, those sorts of things, it seems obvious that the priority when designing these policies must be the reduction of suffering of people who will be impacted by those policies. Start there because the alternative leads to perverse incentives, tragic outcomes, and suffering across the board. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, literally anything you want, and links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.